Our welcome redemption. Woo, it's good to be back. Wow, well, to everyone in the house and to all our family watching online, it is awesome to be together. It's good also, <laughs> it is good to start with the end in mind. To start with the end in mind. If you are building IKEA furniture, say, and you got those pieces in your hand, it's helpful to know whether you're building a kitchen table versus a bunk bed, right? To have the end in mind. Or if you're going on a road trip somewhere, the first thing you wanna do is decide on your destination. To set the GPS coordinates and your Google Maps, whatever, and set up, hey, here's where we're going. Here's the end that we have in mind. My family, we are going on a road trip soon. We, uh, normally every July, we go back to Oregon to see our family and friends are back home. And uh, this summer, our July vacation was postponed. Uh, we postponed it just obviously COVID, everything happening uh, nationally, all that was going on. And, um, but we postponed it and now we're getting ready to, to go and see our family. And normally we'd feel ready to fly but uh, we have some family members who are older, who have some health concerns, and so we're actually gonna drive there and then fly back. And as we get ready to drive, the first thing I'm gonna do, when we sit down in the car, bags are packed, car's stocked, we kinda sit down, the very first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna set the GPS. Right? I'm gonna type in the coordinates, hey, here's where we're going. Here's our destination. And knowing that destination can be helpful because there are gonna be parts of the, it's a long drive, it's like 20 hours, right? So there are gonna be times that we're driving through exciting cities, there are gonna be times we're gonna be driving through dry wilderness, but in the car together we know, hey, here's where we're headed, here's where we're going. We have together the end in mind. Well, today, we're gonna to see Jesus set the GPS, so to speak, to set the GPS coordinates for his ministry. That Jesus is saying, today, here's the destination where my ministry is headed. Here's why I've come, what I've come to do, to bring, and to accomplish. We're in John chapter 2, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there. And John chapter 2 is a famous story. It's a story where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. John tells us in this passage, this is actually the first sign that Jesus does. And that word first uh, it doesn't just mean like chronologically it's the first one that happened. Uh, it also carries associations in the original language of being like the primary sign. It's a word used for royalty, like the first among many. And so this is like Jesus' royal sign, his stamp on his ministry saying, I am locking in the GPS coordinates. This is where this thing is heading. What we're going to discover today is that Jesus has come to launch a wedding for the world where the wine flows abundantly. That brings joy and celebration. So let's turn John 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Well, the first thing we see here is that Jesus sets the GPS. Jesus sets the GPS destination for his ministry. I don't want you to turn to your neighbor and breathe all over him. You can keep your face mask on, but I have missed not only seeing your faces, but hearing your voices. And so if we could say together, set the GPS. That's right. Jesus is setting the GPS, his coordinates, his destination. This is where my ministry is heading. The very first thing we read out of the gate is on the third day, there was a wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding. Now, an astute reader of John might ask, John, on the third day of what? On the third day of the week? Are you trying to tell us this wedding happened on a Tuesday? On the third day of the year? Are you saying this was on January 3rd? Well, in John, this story doesn't necessarily follow after the last story. When you read through the book of John, he doesn't actually tell us the third day of what, and I think it's intentional. When you read through John, you, you find that he doesn't put his stories necessarily in chronological order, uh, as rather he has a theological order, kind of a frame and a flow that he is putting things in. And one of the things that John likes to do is at the beginning of these stories, he'll often give a little clue or a detail that locks us into the bigger sign that this story is a part of. Next week, for example, we'll see he opens the story saying it was around the time of Passover. And Passover in John becomes a clue. All the Passover stories tie into his crucifixion and his death. And so the third day here is a clue, a marker that connects the story as an event, like an icon or a window into something bigger about Jesus. This raises the question... Can you think of any other significant Jesus events that happen on the third day? Come on, class, anyone. Third day events, anyone. Anything that Jesus does on the third day? That's right. On the second day, there was a funeral. But on the third day, there was a wedding. On the second day, his body lay in the tomb, but on the third day, he rose again. On the second day, the enemy thought he had won, but on the third day, he discovered he couldn't keep a good man down. The second day looked like defeat, but on the third day, I saw victory. On the second day, COVID was running rampant, but on the third day, resurrection will go viral. On the second day, the nations were tearing themselves apart at the seams, but on the third day, the nations will be healed and worshiping together in reconciled glory. On the second day, I was blind, but on the third day, I could see. On the second day, I was lonely, third day, found union. On the second day, the wine had all run out, and all we had left was bath water to drink. But on the third day, the rivers started pumping Merlot and Cabernet. <laughs> on the second day, his body lay on the tomb, but on the third day, he rose again. And why did he rise again? to marry his bride. Amen. On the third day, there was a wedding. 
Church, our destination is a resurrection wedding. This whole sign we're going to look at today, it is a sign that is pointing to why Christ has come, what he has ultimately come to accomplish, is a wedding where we are united with our king and the wine will flow in abundance, bringing his joy and celebration to his people and his restored creation in the world to come. Now, this destination is helpful to remember when the road gets rough. Have any of you found the road lately going a little rough going? Maybe it feels like you ran out of gas and you're stranded on the side of the road. Or maybe you ran out of wine, like this couple, this family in the story. We read that the wine has run out at this wedding. And this is an embarrassing event for the couple and their family. It's an embarrassing event because this is the big day. Like, this is the day that their kids have been looking forward to their whole lives. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, for the parents, there were social expectations of hospitality. And they're about to be the talk of the town. Like, Twitter's going to be all ablaze, and people are, oh my gosh, can you believe they didn't? They ran out of wine, right? Like, this is going to be an embarrassing event for this family. Tales will probably go down in the years and decades to come. You remember when the wine ran out at this wedding? This is a disaster waiting to happen. And the truth is, like for this family, like for us, when you run out in the big important moments of life, when you feel like you've got nothing left to give, it can be embarrassing. And I know from talking with many of you and even in my own experience, like this has been a season where I think many of us have felt like we've run out, like we've got nothing left to give. For some, you may feel like you've run out of stamina with your kids or patience with your roommate. and It's caused you to say some things you regret. For others, maybe you have run out of endurance with your loneliness and it's caused you to turn to some things for connection that you really places you know you shouldn't be going. For others, you've perhaps run out of hope in your condition and given in to despair. And like this family, it can be embarrassing for us when we find ourselves at a spot where we've got nothing left to give. And yet, Mary intercedes for her friend. I find it interesting here that Mary, I picture her kind of nudging Jesus with her elbow and like, hey, Jesus, can you do something about this? Can you do something for my friend? Like it's been 30 years, I've been waiting. I know you are the word become flesh. You are the, you know, you are the light of the world who's broken into our darkness. It's this time to reveal your glory, to show what you've come to do. But Jesus responds to her, he says, woman, and that can sound rude in English sometimes, right? Like, he's not saying, like, woman, like that, right? Like our, whatever, descending, condescending tone. In the original language, it's a sign of respect. It's like saying madame, right? So he's not back-talking his mom. He's showing her respect. And he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And that phrase, my hour, shows up throughout John as a reference to his crucifixion. Going, his crucifixion is the moment where his glory it's ultimately going to be revealed. So Jesus is essentially saying here, uh, my hour has not yet come. We're not at the destination yet, but I'm going to give you a sign. 
See, like for Mary, she's essentially asking, like, are we there yet? Like, just are we there? Are we there at the moment where you're going to reveal your glory to the world? She's like that kid in the backseat of the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Jesus is going, we're not there yet. We're not the destination. But I'm going to give you a sign that points to the destination where we're heading. What we're about to see, this turning of water to wine, is a sign of what Christ's crucifixion and resurrection will accomplish. And these GPS coordinates, I believe, are significant for us as a church. This is our first Sunday for many of us back indoors here. Uh, there's a sense that we're, this is exciting and it's good. We're back in the car together, so to speak. We're back in the same vehicle rather than kind of driving separately, talking by walkie-talkies on the, the road trip. You know, we're, we're back here in the room together uh, for many of us, and there's a sense that we're here, but where are we going? What are we oriented towards? Where is this story headed? What do we want to be about? I believe the invitation this morning is to set our GPS coordinates, to align them with Jesus, both collectively as a church and personally as individuals, to to Jesus, we want to be going where you are going, that we want to be a resurrection people on a resurrection journey. And we are invited this morning to come with those areas where you feel like you've got nothing left to give. And I want to invite you like Mary this morning that you can nudge Jesus and say, Jesus, I know that I am not yet at that destination. I know that we are not yet at kingdom come. I know that maybe it's not yet time for the fullness of your kingdom come and glory and all creation restored. But today, can you give me a sign? Jesus, we, we need to experience more of you, more of your healing more of your resurrection power, more of your transformation inside and out with your resurrection life. Jesus, can you give us a sign? Signs of resurrection. Let's continue in verse six and see the sign that Jesus gives. Now, There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. We find here that Jesus makes a Red River's worth of wine. Like Jesus makes a lot of wine, around 150 gallons, John tells us. That's about like 750 bottles. If you go to the store and you're picking out like bottles of wine, standard bottle of wine, that's about 750 bottles of wine. This wasn't grape juice. Now, Jesus is not the dude who shows up at the party or the barbecue and he brings some, I don't know, Doritos and leftover KFC, whatever, right? I like, you know Jesus showing up at the party with 750 bottles of vintage, of the best stuff. Jesus is the life of the party. Can somebody say life of the party? Jesus is the life of the party. You want Jesus at your party. I find it interesting earlier in verse 2, it says Jesus also was invited. They wanted Jesus at their party. It's Jesus is a party animal, right? Like, 
I'm not saying that he's getting wasted or whatever, but sometimes I think we have this picture like sour Jesus where, yeah, he'll show up to the party, but he's only there just kind of make sure, checking everyone's behavior, make sure everyone's keeping in line, you know, like, dude, Kevin, should you have really told that joke? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Meredith, you really need another glass? <laughs> Bob and Ethel, save some room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and no. Jesus is the life of the party. They want him here, and he brings the best, anyone in the house. We are left with this question, though. Why does Jesus make so much wine? That's good. That's kind of overkill, right? Like 150 gallons. That is a lot. Why does Jesus make so much wine? I think we get some helpful backdrop in the prophecy of the Old Testament. There are a number of prophecies in places like Amos and Joel, and they say that, when the Messiah comes and when he establishes his kingdom, that the rivers will run with wine. It's intriguing. Cana, the place where this miracle takes place, Cana is actually named after the Cana River that flows through this area, and it flows down and dumps into the Mediterranean Sea. And so there's an association with the rivers here. And let's look at Amos 9, verse 13 to 14, where we get this picture of the rivers, like the Cana River and the rivers of the land running with wine. It says, when the Messiah comes, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the, foundation, the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. It's a picture of the mountains dripping wine and the rivers flowing with it, and God bringing his abundance through restoration to the life of his people and the land. It's interesting, in Amos, the context of this passage is God rebuilding the temple at a time where the, the temple being destroyed and this portion that God will rebuild the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and then the rivers will flow down from the mountains and the hills, bringing this wine-like rivers through the land, this abundance. And it's interesting John has this in mind. Here in John 2, the very next story we're going to read is about the temple torn down and rebuilt. I'm learning that the true temple, speaking of, is Jesus. Jesus is the temple who will be rebuilt on Mount Zion, and from his life, he is going to bring resurrection wine flowing to his people and through all the land, bringing restoration to creation. Jesus didn't just come to bring us a drop of resurrection wine. He came to bring us a river of resurrection wine. Jesus did not just come to put a Band-Aid over our problems. He came to heal them from the inside out. Jesus did not just come to say, hooray, let's hang out. <laughs> he, came to, he came to inaugurate a party, to launch his kingdom celebration, to inaugurate the wedding with his bride. Jesus came to inaugurate his wedding that restores us in union with our maker and brings abundance to the life of the land. Now John gives us an interesting detail here. He says that the water is from the purification jars. The purification jars. Hmm, why that detail? You get into John, you start realizing every detail is significant. Nothing's there by chance. or He's putting everything in on purpose. Now these purification jars, what 
they were used for was in Jewish ceremonies, like weddings, big, important, sacred ceremonies and festivals. These purification jars were for washing, cleansing yourself. You think about water, there's really two main uses you can do with water. One is you can drink it, and the other is you can clean with it. You can bathe or you can scrub down the counters. Water cleanses, right? And in the Jewish system, from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the major ways for dealing with impurity were washing, with this kind of water that's set aside, with washing and with sacrifices, sacrificial animals that took care of sin and impurity amongst the people. These were the ways... And this sign is pointing us to a greater reality, that you used to get washed with water, but now you get washed with wine. Church tradition says there are three major things that this story, this miracle at Cana points to. Uh, One of these is Jesus' identity as God. Like, who else can turn water into wine? A second one is the sign of resurrection. Jesus going, hey, this is what I've come to do and to bring for my people in the world. But the third is this, ex- that Jesus has come, this miracle shows this expansion from Judaism in the Old Covenant to Christianity in the New Covenant, the welcoming in of the Gentiles and the nations to feast and celebrate in God's kingdom. And whereas in the Old Covenant we used to get washed with, people used to get washed with waters of purification and sacrificial animals, now we get washed with wine, that Jesus' blood is what washes us clean. We sing some weird songs in Christianity, right? Like back home, I remember there was a, a song, a, a hymn that I, I used to sing. I love it. It's called, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And that's the title. It's like the first line. And you think about it, it's actually kind of a gory song, right? Like that sounds like your neighbor who gets all, you know, hyped up on Halloween and their front yard. They got all the crazy cobwebs, the skeleton, like this fountain filled with blood, right? But you go on and it says, sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's talking about Jesus' atoning sacrifice, the power of his blood. There's another song that we often sing, nothing but the blood. Like, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And you think about it, it's actually a counterintuitive image. Usually you dip something in blood and it stains it. It's actually hard to get out. It's like, how am I going to get the stain out? But the image here, though it's counterintuitive, it's powerful going... Jesus' atonement actually is powerful to wash us and make us clean. I remember years ago there was an atheist who visited our church. It was a Christian and atheist, and they were visiting different churches together, and uh, they were kind of writing a book where the atheist was responding to this kind of experience in church or whatever. And overall, I said, hey, they had a good, they sent us the book when they were done, you know, and overall they had a good experience in our church. That was cool. Uh, But he was like, but one thing, there was, what's up with seeing this song about blood? Like, that seemed weird to him, right? And it would. And yet, within the gospel story, we discover that Jesus' blood is powerful to wash us and make us clean. That sin has unleashed death and destruction into our world. And yet, Jesus is the lamb once slain, whose blood is powerful enough to soak up our sin, to soak up our death, to soak up our destruction, and to wash like a sponge and clean, cleanse us and make us whole. Jesus' blood washes us clean. This is powerful because when you come to Jesus, you may feel like, man, I'm just too dirty. Like, God, if you only knew the things that I've done, 
the things that I've said. And yet the gospel preaches the truth. There's nothing too big that Jesus can't cleanse. Jesus' blood is stronger than dove soap. It's stronger than Clorox bleach. Like it can scrub us down and purify us and make us holy and make us whole to stand and celebrate in life with Christ our King. You may find yourself saying, yeah, but I don't know if there's enough for me. I've got all these other people that maybe God's gonna use it for them first. Jesus brought 150 gallons, right? Like he's brought a resurrection river. There is plenty to cover all who desire to come and be washed, be united with him, be made holy and clean and whole, washed in the blood of the lamb and prepared as a bride for the wedding with our groom, Christ our king. All right, well, let's see how this story ends. If we go on in verse 9. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Find here that God saves the best for last. Someone say it's best for last. last. God saves the best for last. Jesus is going, this is a different kind of party. This is a different kind of party. The master goes, hey, normally you go to the party and people bring out the best stuff first. Right? Like people are bringing out like the 20 year cab and the vintage scotch or whatever. And then once everyone's a little bit lit, then you bring out the two buck chuck and the Mike's hard lemonade, right? <laughs> but the master goes, You've done things backwards. You've actually saved the best for last. And this is a sign that points to the fact that Jesus is better than everything that's come before. Jesus is the best that God has saved for last. Jesus is a better sacrifice than all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He is a once-for-all sacrifice that covers and atones for the sin of the world. Jesus is a better cleansing agent. He washes and cleanses and purifies his people better than any water or soap or detergent or different things that could have been used before. Jesus washes and cleanses us better. Jesus brings us a better joy, inaugurates a better wedding, brings a better life for the world. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything that you've given yourself to, those substances that you tried to satiate yourself with the relationship that you thought was ultimately going to bring you meaning in life. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than that position that you thought, when I just get there, I'll have arrived. Jesus is better than all those things that we go to that we allow to kind of captivate our heart, our affections distract us. Ultimately, Jesus is better. Can someone say, Jesus is better. Help me preach up here, because Jesus is better. Man. All of life is all for Jesus because Jesus is better than everything else in all of life. 
We find here as well that God the Father is pleased with the sacrifice of his son. Let me explain what I mean. John gives us here a living parable. Living parable. You read other gospels like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they tell actual parables, like stories that Jesus told, stories that are like a parable, a window, like an icon into these greater truths and realities. But John, instead, he, instead of telling stories, he tells actual events, like events and things that Jesus did. And he shares details in these stories, and he emphasizes certain points to actually paint a picture, like a parable or an icon or a window into these greater realities of who Jesus is and what the gospel does. And in this picture, it ends with a master over the feast, like God the Father, who tastes the wine like the sacrifice of the Son and tells the groom, like the Father says to Christ, this is better than everything that's come before. The Father is pleased with the sacrifice of the Son who gives himself in self-giving love to reconcile the life of his world, to make us a bride, a people united with him forever as the groom, and to inaugurate and kickstart a wedding party where the wine is never going to run out. And the celebration goes on into eternity. I think this helps us explain why Jesus doesn't do the miracle at center stage, right? He does it here through the servants. You ask, why didn't Jesus just do it and everyone knows it's him? There's a couple of reasons. One is, I think he's being polite. He's letting the day be about the bride and the groom. He doesn't want to steal the show. He lets the spotlight stay on them. Jesus is humble like that. He's not a glory-hungry attention seeker who needs all the kudos. He's stoked to kind of let this day be about them, to be their wedding. But another reason here is I believe that Jesus is creating a living parable. He is sovereignly setting up the story and wants it to end with the master of the feast and the groom and the master declaring that the best has been saved for last as he delights in the wine that has been brought. It's a picture of the gospel. My encouragement for us would be don't miss the destination for the sign. Like, don't stop at the sign and miss the destination that it's designed to point us towards. That would be like going to Disneyland. I think I shared the story before. I actually got it from Luke Simmons. If you know Luke Simmons, great analogy. But he's like, okay, you're on your way to Disneyland, and you see a sign that says, like, okay, Disneyland, 120 miles, or whatever. And you pull off to the side of the road with the kids. You're like, hey, we're here, right? And the kids get out in the middle of the desert, and they're like, this doesn't look like Disneyland. <laughs> like, well, the sign says Disneyland, 120 miles. No, you don't want to stop at the sign. You want to look towards the destination that the sign is pointing you towards. And similarly, I think we can look at this story in John 2 and go, we can get kind of just stop at the sign and go, wow, it's a cool party trick, Jesus. Like, you turned water into wine 2,000 years ago at this party. That, that's pretty cool. We should do it here. But don't miss the destination is pointing to you. It's actually pointing us to the gospel and the resurrection wedding and the feast that God wants to inaugurate for all creation, that it is inviting us to set and align our GPS coordinates, our destination, and going, here is where we are heading as his people. And it also shows us that sometimes signs of the destination break in 
to the now. That this morning, I wonder how many of us are hungry for a sign. How many of us are hungry for resurrection moments? Again, I believe the invitation is to come to Jesus this morning, like Mary, to rub him in the ribs and say, Jesus, I know that we're not at that moment yet. I know that we're not at glory of kingdom come and all that this thing is ultimately pointing to, but would you give us a sign today? Where do you feel like you've got nothing left to give? Where do you feel like broken and worn down and stranded on the side of the road? Where do you feel like, man, I just don't know if I can make it. I want to invite you to bring that to Jesus this morning and nudge him in the ribs and go, I know that's coming, but can you give us a sign today? I believe that uh, this is helpful for us knowing what to do when our navigation gets broken. So you can have the GPS destination locked in, but your navigation can get broken. My um, phone has been doing this weird thing lately where uh, my maps app or whatever, you know, I'll type in where I'm going and it locks that in. It's got that. It'll show the the directions. Then when I'm going, it keeps losing the GPS signal of where I am. And so it's kind of like, I know where I'm going, but I don't know where I am. And so I'll be driving and it'll say, hey, you know, uh, turn right in one mile. And so go about a mile. And I'll say, still say, turn right in one mile. So I'll keep going another mile. As I turn around one mile, I'll go, man, I think it was way back there. And realizing, dude, again, I know where I'm going, but I don't know where I am. And some of us, at times, I think even right now, can be going, man, I know, Jesus, you're good. I know where we're heading, but I don't know where I am. This moment, it feels like I've lost track of, of the roadmap there. God, I don't know what you're doing, and what do we do in those times? Well, I find it interesting here. When the disciples saw the sign, it says they believed in Jesus. The actual Greek phrase, they believed into Jesus. That's a, a weird phrase. It's when they, they took their trust, they took their belief, and they put it into Jesus. It said, my GPS destination, it's ultimately locked in him. I trust in you. I may not know where we're at on the road right now, but I trust that you're in the vehicle with us and you know where you're taking us. Whatever you're going through this morning, that you can be going, man, I may not know where I am, but I know where I'm going. And I know the one who is in this journey with me. And he will be faithful to take us as his people, as a church, and personally in each of our lives. He is faithful to bring us to the destination that he has set. The invitation for us today is to trust, to put our belief, our trust in him. And like Mary tells the servants earlier, to do whatever he tells you. Like we trust and obey. Jesus, we trust you. Even when we don't quite know where we are in the story and it feels confusing and the road feels like unfamiliar, we trust in Jesus and we do whatever he says and we try to follow him faithfully as our king. Well, get ready to close here. Uh, I was reflecting this week, and it struck me. So God turns water to wine all the time. God turns water to wine all the time. It's not just in this story. God turns water to wine all the time. Think about it. Like all the time, like the rain falls from the heavens down to the earth. 
All the time that rain goes down and it's buried in the soil. And that water gets sucked up into the vine and absorbed into it and eventually comes out in the fruit, in the grapes, from which the wine is made. God turns water to wine all the time. I would suggest here that Jesus is not so much contradicting nature in this miracle as he is rather speeding it up. Since if he's taking something that happens ordinarily all the time and he speeds it up, makes it happen quicker. There's an important step in the process we're kind of missing. How you gotta make wine, if you're gonna make wine, we can have that water going down, we can have it water from heaven buried in the soil, brought up through the vine and the fruit, but if you're gonna make the wine, you gotta crush the grapes. And Jesus is the one who was crushed to bring forth resurrection wine. Jesus is the one who was crushed in order to bring forth this resurrection wine for us as his people and for the life of the world. And this wine is intended to flow like a river into all creation. John gives us some interesting GPS coordinates at the end of this chapter. He actually says in the next verse that after Cana, they went down to Capernaum. They went down to Capernaum. They went downstream to Capernaum. And if you've been tracing in John 1 and 2, uh, we actually find there's a flow of places that work their way downstream. So we start with the leaders who come from Jerusalem and then Bethany with John the Baptist as they go downstream to Bethany and then downstream to Nazareth where Jesus is from, then downstream to Cana and then downstream to Capernaum, and these empty out, the, the rivers empty out into the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. John gives us this picture of Jesus, the true wine flowing downstream. But then in the very next verse, verse 14, he sets up the next story that will be in next week, and he says, then around the Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem. He's going back upstream to Mount Zion. John is using these GPS coordinates to paint a picture here that the way in which this resurrection wine is going to flow downstream into all creation, into the backwater towns like Cana, into all the different parts and places of our lives as his people, is that first, Jesus is going to have to go up to Mount Zion, up to Jerusalem, where he will be crushed like grapes in order to bring forth his resurrection life into our, us as his people and to inaugurate this wedding feast for all creation. Jesus' own life is the resurrection river that turns water to wine. You know, Mary's only mentioned twice in this gospel, once here and once at the, where Jesus turns water to wine, once at the crucifixion where the sword pierces his side and outflows water and blood. The invitation this morning is to come to Jesus, the crushed one, who was crushed to bring forth his resurrection life for us as his people. I believe the invitation this morning is to set our GPS, both collectively as a church and personally as individuals, to go, Jesus, this is the destination I'm locked in on. We want to align our GPS with Jesus and go, and we're headed towards a resurrection wedding. And on the way, to place our trust in him, to believe into him, to do whatever he tells us. 
Jesus will be faithful to bring us there. So as we receive communion this morning, I want to invite the, the band to come up and uh, for us here in the room and for those at home who have maybe prepared the elements, I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, this bread and this wine, this is for you. This is a sign of Christ's body given and his blood crushed like grapes, poured out for us. And so you may take the bread, the cracker here, I want to say with this bread, this is a sign of Christ's body given for you. You may receive the bread. And now with the the wine or the juice, uh, this is a sign of Christ's blood, crushed like grapes, and poured out for us. You may receive the wine. We're now going to pray together. Um, and also, if you need prayer this morning, maybe there's an area in your life where you just feel like, man, God, I got nothing left to give. I feel like I've run out, I'm dry. I want to invite you to kind of rub Jesus in the ribs with someone else here. Uh, we're going to have prayer over on these side doors under that exit sign. There are people who would love to pray with you. Um, we kind of put it in the, in the hallway so there's not all the noise and everything out here and a little bit spaced out. So definitely feel free to take advantage of that, to go and pray someone to, with someone to bring Jesus. Go, Jesus, I, I want to experience your resurrection life here and now today. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are the ultimate winemaker who turns water into wine. God, you are the crushed one who gave your life for us. So God, we come to you this morning and we bring you all the areas where we feel like we've run out, all the areas where we feel like we've got nothing left to give. And Jesus, I pray for your resurrection life to shape and form us and break into our midst as your people here and now today. God, would you work miracles and wonders, God? Would you restore sight to the blind? Would you heal marriages that are broken? Would you bring life to those, your presence, those who are lonely, God, who are hurting in this season? Pray for signs of resurrection that the not yet of your kingdom would break into the now. God, we commit ourselves to you as your people, both collectively and personally, God, on this road that we're on, this journey ahead, God, we want to say that the destination, the GPS corners, the, the thing that we're locked into, the end we have in mind is life with you forever in union with you as your bride in a kingdom where the wedding will flow in abundance on into eternity. Jesus, it's in your name and under your authority and for your glory that we pray all these things. Amen.